0: Certainly very thankful to be together with uh, church family here today. Some of you know the, uh, some of the recent adventures that we've walked through as uh, a family and as an extended family. Um, Jack Leeds, my, my father-in-law, one of our elders, uh, took a, a bad fall this week down some frost-covered steps and uh, completely ruptured both of his quadriceps, detaching them from the knee. Some of you are already getting squeamish, right? Welcome to our world. Um, super thankful. We're very, very thankful that they're, they live with us and uh, that we were able to kind of transition. Uh, he's had surgery um, to reattach uh, those quadricep muscles and is not able to bend his knees for the next six weeks. And so uh, each of the doctors that came in just kind of put his hand on... Their shoulder and sa- on Jack's shoulder and said, "This is going to be a really long road, <laughs> you know. So he's he's got a long road in front of him. But wanted to just thank you. So many um, people have expressed concern, reached out to us, and so many acts of kindness that have already been demonstrated to our family. And we are we're very thankful to not be alone at times like these. Right? We all walk through times like this, and uh, very thankful to to not be alone. Uh, Jack's experience and my time in." Titus, this week have got me thinking about a particular word. Uh, it's the it's the word ortho, um, and it has to do the the idea is that of straightening or aligning something, right? Jonathan Chomsky, good to see you. I knew you were in the in the six one six. I just didn't catch a sight of you yet. We got all our military personnel here today. The ortho word has to do with alignment or straightening. So uh, an orthodontist uh, straightens teeth, right? Maybe helps them come in straight so that you have a good good bite for your adult years. Um, An orthopedic surgeon or an orthopedic doctor Uh, seeks to correct deformities or functional impairments of the skeletal system, especially the extremities and the spine and associated structures such as muscles and ligaments. So they're taking things that are like maybe it's a broken bone or it's something that's out of joint or ligaments that have been torn and they're reattaching, right? Putting it back together, aligning it again for proper function in the body. We've gotten to know and appreciate orthopedic people this week in a in a fresh new way, right? An orthotic, here's that same word group. An orthotic is a device or a support used to relieve or correct an orthopedic problem. So the braces themselves on your teeth might be considered an orthotic. I have some, I'll periodically have trouble with like plantar fasciitis, and I think it has something to do with my arch, and so I have these nifty little inserts that go in my shoe that provide support. That's an orthotic, right? And we could list off all sorts of different things that are along those lines. So it's an interesting word group. It's a vivid picture in your mind of taking something that is dislocated uh, or broken or stretched, in ways it's not supposed to stretch, and bringing it back into line. And this word, this ortho word, is used here in Titus. And it's used in relationship to the church. Titus was left in Crete to put in order, or to set right, or to correct, or to straighten out what was out of joint right so uh, there was dysfunction and dislocation in the church in Crete and I don't have to tell you there's dysfunction in this local church some of you are new and don't realize it yet so I'm just telling you right those of you who've been around engaged in ministry know it best Right? So this is, this is a, uh, there's a need for orthotic work in the church where we can keep coming into line with God's purposes and designs and standards and lifestyle expectations, doctrine, right? We, we keep coming into line and being aligned With God and His truth, so uh, that imagery just to capture my my attention this week. Of uh, we're so thankful again to be able to reattach those quadricep muscles and get them back in place. And there's a lot of healing that has to happen uh, before he's going to be able to walk. But but the structural aspect has been realigned and reattached again. It's amazing, and uh, some of that work needs to go on at any given time in the local church. Uh, We get something that's out of commission and needs to be brought back into alignment. Uh, we are continuing our, um, oh, by the way, a couple of, of other words that we'll maybe use today that I think draw this out in a, a, a theological sense. Orthodoxy. There's our ortho word, right? Right doctrine or belief, aligned doctrine, doctrine that is aligned with God's revealed truth. That's orthodoxy. And another word we don't use quite as much, orthopraxy. This has to do with behavior that is aligned with God's truth, uh, behavior that is, uh, yeah, that, that is in place uh, with where it's supposed to be. So, uh, again, these are these are some some concepts just to help tease out the, the the ortho word group today as we look about what needs look as we consider what needs to be adjusted and aligned within the local church. We are continuing our Route 66 series, Road Trip Through the Bible. Uh, We've considered creation, uh, the fall of humanity into sin, the the disruption of creation, uh, death entering into the world, and then we've traced that great theme of redemption. God purposing and promising to send a deliverer who would make all things new and right again. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It's centered and found its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, God's own Son, who was sent into the world to die in the place of sinners, to pay the penalty that our sin deserved, to bring us to peace with God, to live a righteous life so that His righteousness could be credited to our account and we could be considered holy in some sense. Amazing thought. Right? This is all God's unfolding plan of redemption to deal with the problem of our sin and our rebellion uh, against him. Uh, Paul wrote a series of letters to churches, local assemblies in the first century, helping them to understand the gospel proper, properly in all of its fullness, to help them know how to safeguard the gospel from false teaching, distortion, and also to help them live in light of the gospel. How should we live? In light of all that God has done for us, right? So, so uh, these, these are really the, the, the pretty consistent themes here in Paul's letters. The little blue section on the bottom shelf there are the letters of the Apostle Paul. And today we are considering Titus. Uh, a very short three-chapter letter. Uh, we've been noting that each of the letters have a backstory, there's individuals, there's a geographical context, there's things that were going on at that particular time in history that help us to fully understand and appreciate what the letter means, what its purpose was, what its benefit is for us today. So the backstory of Titus. Uh, again, while well, most of Paul's letters were written to churches, First and Second Timothy and Titus were written to young people pastors so ultimately they were for the benefit of the churches but paul was specifically writing to some church leaders so that they would know how to care for souls how to direct churches in uh, the way of the gospel titus was a greek which is simply another way of saying he was not jewish and he was presumably a believer. We have reason to think he was a believer in the church in Antioch. Uh, Antioch was one of the first, one of the one of the first places where the gospel really began to spread among the non-Jewish people. And actually, Antioch became the uh, launching pad for missions. Uh, certainly, missions to. The Gentile world the non-Jewish world so Paul and Barnabas were sent out from the church in Antioch and uh, we have reason to think that Titus was connected to that particular church. Uh, Titus was a key case study for the inclusion of Gentiles in the church so this was a major issue right how um, Up until this point, God's people were the Jewish people, and the Jewish people had certain distinctive laws connected with the law of Moses, circumcision and dietary laws, and a lot of things that sort of set them apart. And now, all of a sudden, God was drawing non-Jewish people into his family. Uh, And how does that work now? Do all those Jewish laws just go out the window do the Gentiles have to subscribe to the Jewish laws? Uh, how does that work? And there was a lot of controversy about that in the early church. As a matter of fact, it centers in Acts chapter 15. Here's a, a part of that account here. Certain people, so Paul is in Antioch, right, and things are exploding among the Gentiles says certain people came down from judea to antioch and were teaching the believers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by moses you cannot be saved so jewish the jewish people were coming from jerusalem from judea to antioch saying what in the world is going on we better get a handle on this because things are spinning out of control here all these non-jewish people they need to know how they're supposed to live and so they took it upon themselves to march on there to Antioch and say, hey, here's what you need to do. If you're going to be saved, you need to abide by all these aspects of the Jewish law. text says this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they held this big council, what's called the Jerusalem Council, to hammer this out. Uh, and it's a pretty big question, isn't it? How does a person get saved? How does a person come to peace with God? I mean, that's it doesn't get more important than that. And the church was having to really work through that and understand God's teaching properly. Uh, it says here that Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem for that council along with some other believers. And I'm going to tell you that Titus was one of those other believers. Paul expands on this in Galatians. He's describing the same journey the same jerusalem council he says then after 14 years i went up again to jerusalem this time with barnabas i took titus along also i went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders i presented to them the gospel that i preach among the gentiles i wanted to be sure that i was not running or had not been running my race in vain Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So this is what I'm saying when Titus became a bit of a case study here in the early church. First of all, no medical privacy laws. Right? You're being given some very personal information about Titus. Um, But this was the issue, right? Did Did a person have to be circumcised? Did a person have to abide by all the Jewish laws in order to be saved and the stake was driven into the ground right here no salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and they would not they were not going to be strong-armed into making titus be circumcised so he plays a sort of a crucial role in redemptive history here he's sort of the poster child for salvation by grace alone through faith alone Uh, Paul referred to Titus as his true son. He also referred to him as a partner, a fellow worker, and a trusted representative. So, uh, we don't know much about Titus's biological father, but we might read into this that his biological father was either not living or was not a follower of Christ. In some sense, Paul saw Titus as as his son in the faith and he raised him as such and poured into him uh, as a young man Uh, like timothy titus was often left to establish the churches that had been planted by paul titus spent time in corinth and crete and would later be sent to dalmatia so when paul is writing this letter to titus titus is in crete um a little island in the Mediterranean, but he had already been in Corinth and had an extended ministry there. And when Paul writes his last letter to Timothy, uh, we read in Second Timothy chapter four, Titus was now on to another assignment. He was in Dalmatia, so we see a pattern developing here that certainly tells us Titus was uh, was an organizer. He, he was he was uh, one. Paul's out there foraging through the woods and. Clearing, blazing a trail, right? And, and T- Timothy and Titus are coming in behind and establishing uh, good, solid uh, local churches. Here's uh, just a, a brief uh, map here. Uh, Crete, again, an island out here in the middle of the Mediterranean. This is the particular location where Titus was when Paul wrote to him, there are a few things that are mentioned about Crete in the letter and we'll draw attention to that as we move along. But again, Titus 1 verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. There's our ortho word. I left you there to straighten out, to get things aligned, all the things that are out of joint. (laughs) I want you to do your ortho work here, Titus, and straighten things out and put them in order. So I want to look at some of the things that were really significant uh, that that Titus was to to accomplish here. If if the church was going to be healthy, right? If, If that joint was going to be aligned in a way that that uh, there could be normal movement, right? If if everything was healthy and working right, these were some of the key areas that needed alignment. So we're going to look at three of those here today. Uh, Before we step into the text, I just want to reiterate again, based on the text of Scripture, the importance of the church. The church is critical for the life and health of the believer. God intends for us to grow, to achieve uh, health to to flourish in the context of community with other believers. Um, we've been working through Pilgrim's Progress on Wednesday nights and um, it's been fun. Some of us are re- reviewing it others are kind of reading through it for the first time um, and it's a Christian classic it's got to be on your short list if you've never read it um, but pilgrim christian comes through with a burden on his back and he's relieved of that burden at the cross it rolls off right he experiences great deliverance from the burden of his sin and then he proceeds up the hill of difficulty which is just a picture of the the difficulties of the christian life Uh, that's where the path takes us right it's it's not an easy path or an easy road But he gets to the top of the hill of difficulty and he sees what is called the house beautiful. Or some translations say the palace beautiful. And it's a place of lodging. Uh, There's a a sumptuous feast that takes place there. Um, But it's, it's, it's the church. Bunyan is trying to communicate this as a picture of the church. And up to this point, Christian has been very alone in his journey. There's been a lot of hazards along the way. He is so refreshed, (laughs) reinvigorated, encouraged to come upon other pilgrims. And there's so much that happens here. Again, the sumptuous feast that happens, the sense of fellowship um, that he experiences. And 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 he's actually connected with... um, with other believers through history. There's sort of this, this uh, section there with the, 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 the jawbone of the donkey that Samson used to slay the Philistines. And David's sling is there. And, and he's sort of welcomed into this, this fellowship that spans the ages and the generations. And uh, he is given certain instruction uh, there. And he's outfitted with armor, you know, for the journey, for his protection this is the church <laughs> and it is a really good thing it's a frustrating thing at times we get frustrated with people um we talked about the dysfunction that exists in, in every local church uh, but it is so important and critical to to not be alone and um so uh, certainly we see that we get that emphasis again in titus the importance of what god is seeking to accomplish uh, not just in us individually but in us corporately as his church. So three things that uh, that are marks of a healthy church, a church that is in alignment, right, that's had its its ortho work done. Uh, number one, a healthy church identifies godly and discerning leaders who are able to guard over the purity of doctrine. So Paul talks here about the qualifications of elders right at the outset. He says, I've Left you in Crete, verse 5, that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, The scriptures repeatedly describe a plurality of elders in the local church, more than one, right, a team of leaders. Uh, We see here, as we saw in 1 Timothy, that the characteristics for, or the qualifications for church leaders are character-based primarily. Um, We are currently in a process of identifying church leaders for 2022. So you have submitted names. And now for the last three weeks, there's been a posting, a three-week review period, as called for by our Constitution, where these names, these individuals are being examined. If there's something overt that would disqualify them, then we're asking you to come to us, right? But we're trying to work through a vetting process, Uh, to make sure people meet these biblical qualifications. Again, uh, Titus includes a number of them here. The elder must be above reproach. Uh, At the head of the list here, this seems to be an overarching qualification of a good reputation. Uh, It certainly doesn't mean that they are perfect, but that no one is able to build a case against them uh, that would disqualify them. Uh, He must be a husband of one wife. I don't think this is a statement about marital status as much as it is a character statement. Uh, most commentators agree we could render this. He must be a one-woman man, a one-woman kind of man. Uh, he ought not to be flirtatious. He might ought not to be uh, unfaithful. Uh, this, is a, this is a key requirement. He must manage his own household well. His uh, children must be um, under authority. Again, in part because his task is going to be to uh, serve as a leader over God's family. Uh, At the very least, he needs to maintain order in his own family. Uh, He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He needs to have a a long fuse. right? He's not reactive. He's not argumentative. Uh, He must not be given to drunkenness. Uh, We know that... um, again drunkenness can 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 create a a situation where you're not your your judgment is hampered proverbs talks a little bit about this Uh, individuals who are in positions of leadership should not be acquainted with strong drink (laughs) they need to have their wits about them they need to be able to think carefully and make good decisions Um, must not be violent and i don't think it's just talking about shouldn't be throwing punches around but uh, probably even speaks of verbal violence right which can be just as damaging Ought to be gracious and constructive in his speech patterns. He must not have any questionable financial dealings. Must be hospitable. Uh, Literally, must be willing to welcome strangers. And um, if we kind of read down through to the end of that list, uh, he must be able to refute false teachers. Notice chapter 1, verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And I think probably this is the one qualification that goes beyond character. That seems to get into an area of giftedness. It must have an ability to discern sound doctrine, to recognize false teaching. Uh, In Timothy, Paul says that an elder must be able to teach. And so again, not everybody's wired in the same way, but elders are to uh, be able to think carefully and be very discerning when it comes to truth. So the qualifications for elders, and then the reason for elders, I think that's what Paul goes into here beginning in verse 10, why does a church need vetted spiritual leaders? Uh, Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group, right? So there are many threats out there. There's many forms of false teaching. Uh, He highlights specifically the circumcision group. Again, these are the people who are saying you have to do all these other things in order to be saved. There are countless ways in which the gospel is twisted and distorted right and we need to be very vigilant as a church uh, to safeguard the purity of doctrine one of the ways we do that is by identifying godly leaders elders play an important role as gatekeepers in the local church if you think about it that way a city maybe with an entry point gate and the elders are there at the gate helping to make sure that no false teaching gets in right uh, if only it were quite that easy. But I think that's a helpful way to think, to think about the importance of church leaders. There's sort of some interesting uh, context here too about where Titus was at in terms of the island of Crete. Uh, notice what it says here in verse 12 of chapter 1. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So Paul is just saying, this is what your own people say. This is your reputation uh, there. Um, the sense here being liars, uh, one of the characteristics maybe within that culture, people were willing to, to misrepresent the truth for their own purposes, for their own gain. Right? Uh, brute, how does it say it here? Evil brutes, this is sort of speaking of like animal instinct, like just driven by passions and and instincts instead of having a clear rudder and being driven by truth and conviction and integrity. Uh, These people were just sort of driven by their passions, by their their animal instincts, by their raw desires. So Paul's saying, this is the context in which you're living. Uh, You need to be on guard and make sure you're raising up elders who will... Uh, be able to safeguard sound doctrine. So, a healthy church, a church that's, that's aligned, right, that's had its ortho work done, is functioning properly, they have uh, a strong team of godly and discerning leaders who are able to guard over the purity of doctrine. There's a, a second mark of a healthy church here a healthy church reflects the gospel in its relationships within the congregation. Uh, Healthy church reflects the gospel in its relationships within the congregation. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So, Paul in chapter 1 dealt with sound doctrine. Now he's dealing with behavior. I want you to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. He's talking about lifestyle now. He wants them to live lives that are aligned with the gospel. Right? And he goes through a series of uh, comparisons here, uh, citing people in different stages of life and unpacking how they should live. So again, we have the qualifications for elders but there are qualifications for every person in the local church. That list happens to be out there on the back wall. People have agreed to have their names posted. It's a bit intimidating, right? The reality is we are all called to live up to a certain standard of behavior if we were to call ourselves followers of Christ, His children. So uh, Paul's going Paul's to unpack the expectation for all the people in the church here. He talks about older men. Um, who qualifies as an older man? Here's the, the bugaboo question, right? In ancient Greek literature, the word was used to describe men over 50 years of age. So that's me. I just hit that in December. I'm an old man now. All right? My kids have been telling me that for. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, probably between the ages of 50 and 60 might be sort of that threshold where you would begin to think of yourself in that way. Uh, older men are to be temperate, not given to drunkenness, not given to excesses, um, have healthy boundaries, right, in their, in their life. They're to be dignified or worthy of respect. This doesn't mean that they ought to be all stodgy and never smile and no sense of humor, but it does mean that they ought to... Uh, they ought to be serious in their thinking. They ought to understand uh, the importance of life and life choices. They ought not to be frivolous or trivial. Uh, they're to be self controlled. Uh, they should be sound. There's a great word sound, like um, I think when we think in health terms, like, like healthy, robust, um, as opposed to something that's rotten, right? Something that's sound, it's solid, it's a piece of wood that, that is not hollow. <laughs> But it's sound. Um, They ought to be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in endurance. There ought to be a certain steadiness about them. Uh, Had enough life experiences and should certainly know that God can be trusted in every way. And so when trials come, they are able to endure those things with confidence. Uh, Older women. Uh, Similarly, we might think of older women in terms of childbearing years, maybe uh, uh, younger women up to 40 or 45, and then we start to think of women as older women. Uh, They are to be reverent. This is a a word that speaks of piety or their orientation towards God. Uh, Paul in one of his other letters talks about the fact that um, women should dress modestly as those who, you know, consistent with those who profess to worship God. So in other words, if you're claiming that you're a follower of God, that you are under his authority, then you're trying to direct attention to God, not to yourself. You're trying to make much of God, not to make much of yourself. Right, so this is some of the the ideas related to reverence or piety. Um, They are not to be a a gossip or a slander. Uh, They are not to be given to drunkenness. Uh, They should teach what is good, chapter 2, verse 3. That's a wonderful word. By the way, good is a little bit of a theme word for Timothy, uh, for Titus, rather, or for Paul in writing to Titus. Um, But this word, good, speaks of something that is beautiful. Um, Winsome is an older English word, right? Just um, noble. It's not just talking about moral goodness, that these women should be marked by um, acts of generosity and, and beauty. I was thinking of these happy grandmas in the video we saw today. Like, just, there's a beautiful quality to what they're doing, right? That just exudes joy, and uh, it's kind of over and above. It's not just sort of a baseline morality. You know, don't lie, don't cheat. You know, it, it's, it's much beyond that. Uh, these uh, we, we, older women ought to be characterized by this kind of beauty and goodness uh, and they are to teach not only their own children but paul's pretty specific here they're to teach the younger women of the church and not so much teaching just theology but teaching life and what a huge need this is what a wonderful ministry this is i, I Pray if you find yourself in a category as an older man or an older woman that you give careful thought to who you can be teaching, who you can be pouring your life into. Um, that's a great gift. And I think especially uh, more and more people uh, are displaced from their, their hometown, their extended family. Uh, we need more than ever godly role models and uh, pseudo uh, uh, moms and dads, right, who can step in and fill those roles and help. Uh, we've got all these new moms now, right? Rebecca Emerson has a passion for just coming alongside of new moms and just thinking how she can help encourage them and all the things that new moms go through, right, the questions you face. And so uh, th- this is a wonderful, wonderful ministry. This, too, is part of what older women need to be thinking about. Uh, as, as they mature in the faith and have so much to offer. Uh, Paul uh, talks about younger women, how he wants them to behave. Uh, he clearly is addressing young women, or at least predominantly addressing young women who are married. I don't think Paul is in any way slighting single young women. Uh, he has a whole section on that, right, as he writes to the, the church in Corinth about singleness and its tremendous value um, But singleness would not have been as common in the ancient world. There weren't the same vocational opportunities. Women often had to marry for financial reasons. So Paul predominantly has in mind young married women. Uh, They were to love or be committed to their husbands and their children. They were to be self-controlled. They were to be pure. Uh, They were to be working at home. Here's maybe the, the controversy here in Titus chapter two the bible does not in any way limit women to only working at home Uh, we could look at proverbs 31 as a rather industrious entrepreneurial woman who is commended but obviously even when you look at proverbs 31 you see that that woman gave great attention to her home uh, to to her children and providing for them even in the winter and And all of these great statements, right? And she went far beyond that and had her her hands in all sorts of business ventures. But there was sort of this priority uh, there in the home. Um, Women have a, a unique role in creating a warm and safe home, a nurturing environment for the faith of their children. It's kind of out of step with our culture. Maybe even you read that and you think it's a bit demeaning but I would suggest we need to bring our values into line with God's values, right? This is such an important uh, arena of responsibility that it can't be farmed out. Uh, it can't simply be abdicated to someone else to raise your children, right? Whether you're working in the home or outside of the home, uh, this is our responsibility as moms and dads, right? The care and the nurture of our kids, and it's, there's some aspects of that 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 uh, only moms can do, right? God gives grace in situations where mom's not present and uh, where dad's not present, but uh, God has called us to these wonderful, and I think even our culture is recognizing the impact of homes where parents are not present, right? I mean, this is a huge, this is not just an issue in the church, something we need to be talking about, but it's a huge cultural issue, And so we need to, of all people, embrace the value of these tasks in a society that doesn't often assign them value. So uh, God hear that. When you hear Paul's words, hear the words of affirmation (laughs) and the importance of the role of both men and women. He also addresses younger men uh, here in verse 6. And I find it Very telling that Paul identifies one character qualification for younger men. Self-control. I have sons. I was once a young man. Uh, This is the issue, okay, is is self-control. Young men must be self-controlled when it comes to sex, when it comes to sports, when it comes to entertainment when it comes to video games when it becomes to uh, to work uh i find that that guys even young guys tend to be very focused right on one thing and uh we need to be developing disciplines in there young guys if you you like to sleep in saturday rolls around you don't have to get up at the crack of dawn for school but i'd encourage you to set your alarm shock your parents half to death right Set your alarm. Give yourself an extra hour or so to sleep, but then make a plan to get up. You know, Make a plan to spend time in God's word. It will not just happen, trust me. 50 years of experience, right? It will not just happen if you don't make a plan. Uh, if you like video games, work with your parents to come up with healthy boundaries and set an alarm. Here's a time that I've set aside, to, and, and when that alarm goes off, my time's done. I step away from it. Desperately need to exercise and develop self-control for young men. Timothy was a young man. (laughs) Actually, Paul does go on to expand a little bit here and give some additional instructions to Timothy, specific or Titus rather, because Titus falls into this category. But this is is a huge area for young men. And then he talks about slaves, verses 9 and 10. We might think of this being a little bit more to do with vocational relationships between employees. And employers, Paul had already talked to Timothy about the unique dynamics of how to relate to masters who were fellow believers, right? In other words, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet they have authority over you within that culture. And Paul doesn't really give a lot of time, you know, in terms of how can you change your circumstances and eradicate the evils of slavery, Paul. It's just, it was a reality, and Paul's just encouraging them how to live out the gospel, how to align their lives with the gospel. Right, in these various domains of life. And Paul keeps coming back to. He keeps coming back to the reason for these various instructions, uh, verse five. Older men, older women, and younger women are to live this way so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 8, young men were to live this way so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 9, slaves are to live this way so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So Paul wants believers to live in a way that would reflect well on the gospel that exudes and reflects the gospel in all of its beauty and i think we have to ask ourselves that question is your life drawing people towards christ or is it repelling people from christ right are your facebook posts drawing people to christ or repelling people from christ right as your people are watching the world is watching how we live our lives so he gives this exhortation towards right behavior within the church, and then he provides a basis for that behavior. Exhortation right behavior, basis for that right behavior. He goes on to talk about God's grace in chapter 2, verse 9. Um, God's grace has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And the gospel not only provides salvation, but the gospel changes us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness pursue self-controlled upright and godly lives so this this should be the natural response for a person whose life has been impacted by the gospel who's experienced god's forgiveness and grace our lives ought to be transformed and aligned with the gospel finally a healthy church reflects the gospel and its relationships outside the congregation So again, in chapter 2, he's wanting them to align with the gospel in terms of how they function within the church. In chapter 3, he wants them to align with the gospel in terms of how they function with the world. So the nature of our conduct towards the world, chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. So Paul is talking here specifically about the church's orientation towards governing authorities and to the surrounding culture in general. He uses that great word everyone at the end of verse 2. We're to be subject to rulers and authorities. By the way, all the rulers and authorities in Paul's day would have been ungodly and set against the church. So we're in good company, but no excuses as to why we don't respond in humility, uh, seeking to do good. uh, Whatever is good, I think that again ties into uh, laws that are established that we ought to live in light of those things. We should not slander or speak in uh, dehumanizing ways. We should be peaceable, not inciting unrest. Uh, It doesn't mean we don't speak out in the face of falsehood or oppression, uh, but we are called to have a posture of humility. And he goes on to talk about the reason for our conduct towards the world. And if I were to sum up chapter 3, verses 3 to 8... Uh, Paul says, don't forget the kindness that God has shown to you. You were what they now are. (laughs) You were once in their position. (laughs) Don't forget that. We find ourselves really frustrated with the world when we forget that we were the world, apart from the grace uh, grace of God shown to us through Christ. So he's... Motivating them to to respond in love towards the unbelieving culture. And then verses 9 through 11 talks about the importance of our conduct in the world uh, there in in those verses. There's a great little section here in Paul's closing remarks. Verses 12 through 15. I read verses 13 to 14 do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and to see that they have everything they need so Zenos uh, again apparently a layperson within the congregation a lawyer and Apollos as we know was a very gifted Bible teacher and Paul is essentially telling them the church to support them financially give them what they need but then he draws an even bigger principle in verse 14 And I think this is just consistent with what he's been teaching throughout the letter. He says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. In order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. So again, he's calling them to do what is good. To be marked by generosity and kindness. Uh, These are the things that ought to mark God's people. These are gospel ways of living that ought to be true of the church in Crete and ought to be true of the church in our day as well.